This is the word of the Lord from Acts, chapter 17, 1 through 9. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you. If you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you on this rainy spring morning. It is my joy to get to kick off a new teaching series today in the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And you may be saying, well, wait a minute, that scripture reading was from Acts. You're right, Uh, because that's the story of the founding of that church that these letters are written to. A couple years ago, we went through the book of Acts, and I went back and re-listened. Pastor John preached on Acts 17, so no, I'm not here to correct everything he got wrong. That is not it at all. Uh, He actually focused more on the second half of the chapter, which was Paul in Athens. And so here we get to do a little bit more of a deep dive into the founding of this church in the first half of the chapter. And whenever we start a new sermon series, a new teaching series, I'm kind of a big picture thinker. I like to think the big picture, the overview. But sometimes I struggle to figure out how to put into words, you know, how to summarize what it is that we're about to study and what it is that we're about to do. So I've got a little something here I'd like to read to you, okay? It says this. As we gather here today to delve into the word of God, I want to begin by introducing our focus for today, the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. These letters, written by the Apostle Paul, were sent to the church in Thessalonica, a city in Macedonia, during his second missionary journey. The letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians address a number of issues that were of concern to the Thessalonian believers. In particular, They deal with the return of Christ and what that means for believers, as well as how to live as a Christian in a world that is often hostile to the gospel. Throughout these letters, we see the heart of Paul for this young church and his desire to encourage them in their faith. His words speak to us today as we too seek to navigate the challenges of living out our faith in a world that is often hostile to the gospel. So as we dive into these letters, let us open our hearts to the wisdom and guidance of the Holy Spirit, and may we be encouraged and strengthened in our own faith journey. It's good, right? Do you know who wrote that? Chatbot GPT, an artificial intelligence website. We're all doomed, you guys. Uh, Because I read that, I'm like, that's pretty doggone good. That's a good introduction. 
oh no, every kid is never gonna learn how to write an essay or a paper. Um, I would like to publicly blame Pastor John for giving me the idea to type in, dear chatbot, please write a sermon series intro to the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. But I'm like, that's pretty doggone good. Now, I would like to assure you that everything else I say from here on out is my own, or I will quote the scholar who said it, okay? So, um, you did notice a couple things, just some overview, big picture overview, okay? Uh, the, the, the letters to the church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica is this capital city in Macedonia. Macedonia is kind of a part of Greece. And actually the city, Thessalonica, is named after Alexander the Great's sister. It's a very important trade route, a very important city. And Paul, uh, as you heard our dear brother chatbot GPT said, this church was founded on Paul's second missionary journey somewhere around AD 49 or 50. We don't exactly know, but it's interesting to note that the uh, Roman emperor Nero had expelled Jewish people from Rome in AD 49. So this letter, or this, this, sorry, this church is founded right around that same time, kind of in the aftermath of this turmoil in the Roman Empire. You also may have noticed in the scripture reading, we'll dive into this a little bit more, that it's this church of both Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers, Gentiles, all coming together. Paul started out in the synagogue speaking to Jewish people, but it said that there's these non-Jewish people that are all brought together, unified under the message that Jesus Christ is Lord. But you also could see that there was opposition from both Jewish people and Gentile people in the foundation of this church. Michael Holmes is a scholar, a real human being, who uh, he writes this. He says, the people to whom he addressed the two letters we now call First and Second Thessalonians were, for the most part, new converts to Christianity who had grown up in and hence were thoroughly socialized in a Greek cultural environment. And one of Paul's major challenges was that of re-socialization, helping the believers to learn and understand and live by the very different social and ethical code of early Christianity. What made this task particularly challenging was that these people were also facing intense persecution from the surrounding culture. And by the way, I should say this, this is completely relevant to our lives today because we live in a world where the cultural norms and the cultural standards are often quite different from the principles or the values or the standards of the kingdom of God. And so we too need to be re-socialized, amen? As a result of their commitment to Jesus, they were experiencing social ostracism being pushed away or isolated, as well as even the intensity of physical attacks from the society around them. Now, in these, these two letters, you're going to see some really common recurring themes. And the first theme, the one that really runs so strongly throughout both First and Second Thessalonians, is gratitude for God's work. There is so much gratitude and thankfulness and joy and encouragement in these letters. If, you, if you've read the letters of Paul, you know that there are some letters where he writes to uh, maybe issue a loving pastoral kick in the pants, uh, think like the letters of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. This is not that. These are far more just encouraging. I love you. I'm so thankful for what God's doing in you. The second theme is related to that. Hey, I'm grateful for what God's doing in you. Keep going. An encouragement to persevere. 
Don't give up. I know it's hard. I know there's opposition. I know there's pressure. Keep going. And then third, while you persevere and while I'm encouraged, you need to have patience for the return of Christ Jesus. It seems like he's delaying. It seems like it's taking a long time. In fact, as we're going to see in 2 Thessalonians, some of the people in this church thought that Jesus had already returned and everybody who had died missed out and won't get to enjoy the kingdom of God forever. And Paul goes, trust me. When Jesus returns, you'll know it. Like, don't worry. It's not going to be some secret thing that you miss out on. So with that said, kind of a big picture, I want to spend some time diving into Acts chapter 17. I've titled this sermon simply, A Gospel-Birthed Church. So will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that these letters and this uh, story from close to 2,000 years ago still has a lot of relevance for us and our lives today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the same resonance with this message of the gospel, the same resonance that these believers did so many centuries ago. And Lord, would you guide my words and guard my speech? I only want to teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And Lord, give us all soft and teachable hearts today, we pray. In Jesus' good name. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right, let's talk about groups for a moment here. Here we are gathered in this group and this is a different group than was here two hours ago at the nine o'clock service. You're the sleep in and go to church a little bit later group, right? Uh, we are a church. This is a group. And you think about humans are always gathering together in groups. Just this last week, uh, one daughter gathered with a group uh, softball team. Then she gathered with a group of a bunch of other 10-year-old girls for a birthday party. I have another daughter who gathered with her drama club and they did six hours of dance rehearsals and she's very tired and very sore today, I was informed. My wife and I on, what was that, Tuesday night, gathered together with one other couple in a very small group for a double date and then we went to Climate Pledge Arena with 30,000 of our closest friends for a, another group gathering. Uh, I gathered with a group from the gym this week. I'm gathered with a group here at the church. Uh, if the rain lets up, we're going to gather together with another group of softball parents. Everybody's always gathering in groups. Think about your own life. What did you do to gather with groups of people at work or at school or for recreation? Humans are always found in groups, families, clans, villages, cities, teams, brigades, armies, nations, clubs, associations, companies, and governments. Did I miss any? No, I didn't every group you could possibly gather in. Now, why? Scientists will come along and say, well, because nature likes to cluster in groups, right? Trees gather in forests and, you know, you have, you know, uh, uh, mushrooms like to clump together in a, I don't know, what's a clump of mushrooms called? Is there a name for that? I didn't, I, I didn't do my research, sorry. You have a flock of seagulls or a pride of lions or a murder of crows or whatever. You know, nature just loves to gather together. And human beings, we're nature too, and so we gather together in nature. And, you know, sociologists will come along and say, well, yeah, there's a lot of value and cooperation and it's beneficial for us to work together. And all of that might be well and true and good, but we who have read the Bible believe that there's yet a deeper reason why we gather together in groups, and it's this. We are image bearers of a God who is relational. 
We are made in the image and likeness of a God who is three in one, who is in and of himself three persons overflowing in a relationship of love. The apostle John in 1 John chapter four, he writes these, these famous words. He says, dear friends, let us love one another. Like let's get together in a group and let's love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God and the one who does not love does not know God. Why? Because, say it with me, God is love. And this is not just a statement of like God's kind of emotional feeling state. This is actually a statement. In order to love, love requires an other. And within who God is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, all co-equal, all co-eternal, within who God is, is relationship and love. Amen? There's an old saying that if you deny the Trinity, you lose your salvation. And if you try to understand the Trinity, you lose your mind. We don't fully wrap our heads around how God can be three in one and how all of that works. But the Bible says that we are made in his image and likeness. And therefore, we are just inherently relational. We are inherently grouping together in who we are. Now, we know that sin enters into the picture Right out of the gate, Adam and Eve listen to the voice of the, the, the liar, the serpent, and they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and instantly you see that the, the, the coming together, the unity, the grouping, the relationship, even between husband and wife, Adam and Eve, is fractured. What does Adam do? He blames her. God, the woman you gave me. Husbands, it hasn't worked since the dawn of time. Stop blaming your wives and just take responsibility, okay? Unless she really did it, then, then that's fine. The very next page, Cain and Abel at each other. You know, Cain murdering his brother Abel. On and on and on. Human violence, human separation, human division. The world is a mess of division because of our sinfulness, amen? It's a broken world. And I have to be honest to look in the mirror that I have contributed to that brokenness. I have contributed to that division. We were singing in that song earlier, the line that says, we've been throwing heavy stones. Guilty, I have done that. And so God sent his son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, into the world as Jesus of Nazareth, who came and he lived a perfect life, not throwing the heavy stones, offering grace and mercy and forgiveness. And he went to the cross and he died on that cross in our place because of our sinfulness. And in his death on the cross, the curtain is torn, the dividing wall of hostility is broken down. And when he rose, risen from the dead, he's inviting all of us to come to him and experience reunification with God, but also reunification with each other. This is the good news of the gospel, amen? That Jesus is coming to do a work of healing and restoration and bringing us back together. What sin fractured and broke is now healed and unified in Christ Jesus. And Jesus said that he's going to do this work. It's gonna work its way out through a very unique organization that he founded called the church. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples and they're talking about who the crowds think he is. What's his identity? Who is this Jesus? And he turns to Simon, Simon Peter, and he said, who do you say that I am? And Simon replied, you are the Christ, the Messiah, 
the son of the living God. And I always love to read this passage because Peter gets it wrong so often. I love seeing Peter get one right. Like, dude, solid double into the gap. Good job, buddy. Like, this is great. He said, blessed are you, Simon, the son of Jonah. You couldn't have known about this because of flesh and blood. You had to have this revealed by my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Simon, I'm giving you a new name. Peter, you know what that means? Rock. You're rocky. Yo, Adrian, and stuff like that, right? Like, you're rocky. And on this rock, on this tough, firm, solid foundation, I will build, say it with me, my church. Jesus is building his church. And the gates of hell will not win against it. And I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This, this kingdom stuff, you know, we've been talking about the kingdom for months, the parables, all this kingdom stuff. It's going to play out in this thing called the church, the, the work of the kingdom. The, the, the church is not the kingdom. The church is like the embassy for the kingdom. And all over the world, there's these little churches gathered everywhere, and the, the work of the kingdom is going to happen through it. If you, if you bind something on earth, it's going to be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The word church there is literally the gathered ones or the called out ones. It's ecclesia. It's assembly. It means come together right now. Not over John Lennon because of Jesus, okay? It's this group, it's this, it's this entity, it's this thing that Jesus himself founded and he said, now it's gonna go out to the ends of the earth and you're gonna see this good news that Jesus is the Messiah start to show up everywhere. And there's a guy named Paul. He did not believe that. He thought that Jesus was off his rocker. He thought the followers of Jesus were heretics and dangerous. And this guy, Paul, or his Hebrew name, Saul, Shaul, he was devoted to locking up Followers of Jesus. He was devoted to shutting down the message of Jesus, imprisonment, even execution. He was killing people who were followers of Jesus. And you know until what happened one day? He met the resurrected Savior. And he said, whoa, I am way wrong. <laughs> this is the real one. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. And so he devoted himself to traveling the whole world over to get this message out. He said, this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He died. He rose again. And then everywhere that Paul went, what would he do? He would plant little churches. The kingdom of God working itself out in the church and all these little churches in far-flung places like Corinth, and Antioch, and Linwood, Washington. Paul never planted a church in Linwood, Washington, but we're, we're part of that same sort of work. Everywhere the gospel is proclaimed and Jesus is preached, these local churches. So that's what leads us to Acts chapter 17. Paul is on one of these journeys, and let's go ahead and pick up in Acts chapter 17, verse one. It says this, after they'd passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. We already said it's this major important city. Paul liked to go to these big important cities because you could kind of gather a crowd there and then people would travel back out to the more outskirts of the empire and take the message with them. So the first thing he did, he goes to the Jewish synagogue. And as usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, those are three Saturdays, so three Saturdays in a row, Paul went to the synagogue. I don't know what you did with your Saturday yesterday. I did not go to the synagogue. I went to the shed and I emptied my shed and I cleaned my shed and I did battle with spiders. And if you see me at some point during the sermon, just like this, it's because I'm still afraid that the spiders are everywhere on me, okay? 
I don't know what you did for your Saturdays. Paul was going to the synagogue. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining, here it is, listen, and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. Quote, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. That's his message. That's what he's doing to found this community of Jesus followers. Now, some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, including, it says, a large number of God-fearing Greeks. God-fearers is the term for non-Jewish people who came to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and wanted to follow and wanted to worship along with the people of Israel. So there's Jewish followers of Jesus now. There's Greek, non-Jewish followers of Jesus, as well as a number of the leading women. So often throughout the Jesus movement, you see God utilizing women in places of importance, probably as benefactors, uh, some of them hosts in their home to, to host these house churches, financial bankrolling. It's awesome the way that God um, elevates and honors and uses women in this Jesus movement. But it says, the Jews became jealous. And just a little tip, whenever you're reading the Bible and the gospels or in Acts, you see that phrase, the Jews, there's, there's a really tragic history of anti-Semitic readings of that to say like all Jews or all Jewish people hated Jesus. We literally just read that Jewish people and Greek people were both becoming followers of Jesus. When you see that phrase, the Jews, it's an old fashioned way in Bible times for them to reference the religious leaders, the Jewish establishment religious leaders. So there's no room for an anti-Semitic interpretation. It's a really tragic thing than the history of church, the, the church that's crept in so much. And I'm not just saying that because I hung out with Rabbi Matt this last week. It says the Jews, these religious leaders became jealous and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. We're gonna shake things up. We're gonna, we're gonna express our frustration. And they attacked Jason's house. We don't really get much information on who Jason is, but apparently it's where Paul and Silas would have been staying. So he's some, so, somehow involved with the synagogue. He's, a, he's a, a member of the community there and he's the host. So they attacked Jason's house, searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the public assembly. So when they didn't find them, they just dragged Jason and some of the other brothers, you know, the other, the other men who are maybe leading in that synagogue, and they dragged them before the city officials shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. Now they've come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. Here's the accusation. They are acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, some guy named Jesus. Don't you love it when the enemies of the gospel get the gospel message exactly right? They nailed it. They're saying there's another king. Like, yeah, we absolutely are. Caesar is not Lord. He's, he may be in charge of the Roman Empire, but there is one who is higher. His name is Jesus. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, king of kings and Lord of lords. Now the crowd and the city officials who heard these things were upset. And I actually find this, this conclusion, it's less dramatic. Like at this point is usually when somebody gets thrown in prison or an angel comes with an earthquake. No, it just says, now oh, they find him. Took a security bond from Jason and the others and then let him go. Ah, oh, fines from the government is always the worst. Uh, that's how the story ends. That's how the church was founded. Now, here's the singular point that I want you to take away from this. Jesus came to found the church. All throughout the world, these apostles, these missionaries founded churches everywhere. And we see it laser clear in this passage that the foundation of this church is a message 
The foundation of this church is a message. It is good news that Jesus is the Messiah. He suffered, he died, and he is risen from the dead. That is what Paul preached. Christ crucified and Christ risen from the dead. You tracking with me? And so what I would like to say about this church in Thessalonica, I would like, like it to say that it would be true of all the other churches in this. A church is only truly a church because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A church is only truly a church when the good news of the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus is foundational and central. Now, some of you are sitting here and you think, well, that, of course, Aaron, why are you... That's a weird thing to make like the central point. Isn't that obviously like, yeah. And I would just say to you, in my experience, I have been a part of church since I was a very little kid. My parents became Christians when I was about three years old. The midwife who caught me, told them about Jesus, invited them to church. Their lives were turned inside out when I was about three years old. I got baptized when I was seven years old. I started playing drums in the church. Well, I started sneaking and playing the drums in the church when I was about seven years old. I was actually allowed to play drums in the church when I was 10 preached my first sermon somewhere around 13 or 14. Actually, no, I take that back. The first sermon I ever preached, we have it on video somewhere. Uh, I was six, and it was because my sister got a big dollhouse with Barbie and Ken, and before they were able to move in together, I was convinced they had to be properly married. So I preached a wedding sermon for Barbie and Ken at six years old. Somewhere there's a family home video. I was, I was very concerned about righteous living even back then. Um, like I, I, I took a church job when I was in my mid-20s. I've been serving in and leading in church. I'm friends with dozens, literally dozens, maybe hundreds of pastors. And I, I say this to you, not to, not to like, I'm not trying to boast myself or anything like that. I'm just telling you, in my experience, you would be surprised how easy it is for a church to make something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ the center and the foundation of the church. And I thought of a few examples. I'll share them with you. One example is turning the church into a civic club. Now, this is something that is probably more relevant for older generations, but there's these things called like, you know, the Elks Club or the Shriners or the Masonic Lodge or these civic clubs. I actually called my mom and was asking her about it because it's something that's not been very relevant to my own life and in, in the generations, but she was talking about her parents, but actually her grandparents were lifelong members of the Elks Club. I've actually spent more time with actual elk than I have, like with an elk's club. <laughs> and she was saying that in her childhood, every family picnic, every fundraiser, every charity event, everything just revolved around this elk's club. Um, and she said, actually, almost every time she can remember spending with her grandparents, my great-grandparents, was always, it was a picnic, it was a bridge night at the elk, everything was the elk's club. It's just, it's community, it's games, it's fundraising, it's just kind of your social life. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a club, you know, unless it's like the He-Man Woman Haters Club or something like that, right? That's a little rascal's reference. You 90s people know it. Nothing wrong with having a club, but the church is not a civic club. The church is not a, oh, it's just where I get my socialization. We do a little fundraising. We play, we play bridge. We've never played bridge as a church. Maybe we should have a bridge night. I don't know. We had a poker night. Why not a bridge night, right? Nothing wrong with having a, having a club, but that is not what the church of Jesus Christ is, amen? Another example is an event. You could go to a baseball game, you could go to a concert, or you could go to a killer church service. Now, I like church services. 
I've devoted my life to hosting and leading worship gatherings. I love it when the songs and the message and it all comes together in a unified theme. I love it when the music is just right. I love it when the room is full and there's an energy and people clap and I love all that stuff. But the church is not just an event that you attend. Another thing that's insufficient on its own, turning the church into a classroom. I could listen to a TED talk. I could watch a documentary. I could listen to a podcast, maybe some sort of you know, investigation, journalism, and learn something. I could take a college class, or I could come to church. And I see lots of you with notebooks and pens in hand. I love that you're taking notes. I love that you're learning. Obviously, learn, are we pro-learning here? <laughs> this is not a trick question, by the way. Also, by the way, uh, I'm glad you're taking notes, but science has proven that you will receive an 8% better sermon if you just say amen more. That's for, for me, that's kind of trigger, so... Uh, yeah, there you go. Amen. Yeah, I received that. Laughter also helps. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but the church is not just a classroom where we come to learn about religious principles. You guys with me? Okay, because if you're not, I'm about to step on some toes here. Here we go. Uh, you know what else is insufficient when we center and found the church on our work of activism? Homeless outreach, racial justice, schools in Africa, Foster care. Now, are all those things good things? Again, I'm not tricking you. But they make a terrible foundation for what the church is. Paul didn't show up in Thessalonica and say, I'm here with a message. We're going to care for orphans and widows. He started with what? This message of the gospel. It may lead to that behavior, but it's insufficient alone. Uh, Here's another one. This is where I really maybe start stepping on toes turning the church into a hospital, recovery ministry, biblical counseling, group therapy. Um, I have firsthand direct experience with a couple of different church groups that in my estimation really made care and recovery type of ministry the foundation and the center of the church. And what I saw very, very different geographical, very different people, very, but it was the same sort of mistake. What happened is, is everyone made their woundings and their problems the center of the church. And if you no longer had that problem, you were no longer kind of part of the inner circle of that faith community. Now, I am for, and Jesus is for, the binding up of the brokenhearted. There is healing in the presence of the Lord. There is grace to be experienced by the Spirit of God in relationship with one another, praying and talking and processing about the hurts and the wounds of this fallen life. But that is not the foundation or the center of what the church is. Family. Making family be the center and the foundation of what the church is. Ultra-close friend group traveling together doing life together. I put scare quotes around it. Maybe you don't know. If you're newer, you should know. I really don't like the phrase doing life together because a non-Christian friend of mine heard it one time in a church and was like, do, do life? What is that? It's like, yeah, it is. We, we Christians say weird things sometimes. Am I, am, I, am I doing it? Am I doing life? Am I doing it right now? Am I doing it? I don't know. I think I'm doing it. I might be doing life. So I say I don't like it. Every time that Myung gets up here and talks, he always like drops it extra times just to get under my skin. So fun. Um, I believe that the church should have close, tight-knit communities. But when you make 
family and friendship, the core and the center and the foundation of what the church is, well, a couple of problems happen. Number one, um, talking with a pastor friend of mine where a group had all matching t-shirts, they all went on a cruise together, they all sat together, and it became a completely ingrown clique. They didn't include other people, they didn't welcome other people, and it actually, at their church, the elders had to get involved and kind of break it up, and it was messy and it was painful. If not that, you have this really tight-knit family in this core, what if somebody moves? What if someone just discerns a new season of life? Hey, I'm gonna maybe go to a different church or try a different group or something like that. Friends, family, in the church, 100%. Foundation and core, no. Actually, after I came up with this list, I thought of one other one, which is leadership. Um, good leaders are a blessing to the church, amen? I wanted a louder amen from you on that, okay? <laughs> um, a church is benefited by having good leaders. Are those leaders meant to be the core and the foundation and the center of the church? By no means. See, here's the thing. I identified two, there's nothing wrong with anything. And a matter of fact, actually, all these are good things. These are actually all good things. Jesus said, go into all the world and teach people, right? Uh, Jesus said to, to care for you know, the poor and widows and orphans. Jesus said to bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus came to make us in family. These are all good things. They're just bad foundations, See, the first problem, if you, if you make this the foundation, the first problem is there is a version of each one of these things that you can have apart from Jesus. If all you want is a classroom, you can get that from a TED Talk. If all you want is to be an activist, you can do all the homeless outreach you want. If you, all you want is an ultra-close friend group, you hear like professional athletes talk about, this team's like a family, man. It's like, we're like a family, we're like brothers. Go get that from somewhere else. We believe as followers of Jesus, that this is no human organization. The church of Jesus Christ, founded by Jesus Christ, belonging to Jesus Christ, built on Jesus Christ, sustained by Jesus Christ, and when every other human institution has been burned up by the return of Jesus, the work that has happened through the church will last into eternity. So if all you want is those things, fine, go find it somewhere else. This is about Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. That's one problem. The second problem is that if you make any one of these things the center of what the church is, well, it puts a lot more pressure on you to do things on your own. See, the gospel is good news. Good news is something that you hear. It's something you receive. And it's something that you don't contribute to at all. Now, it's gonna, if you hear the good news, it's going to affect what you do for sure. But the news itself is not something that you do. Let me share an example with you. I have good news for you. The Seattle Mariners have won three games in a row. <laughs> no, maybe this is not a baseball crowd. Okay, fine. <laughs> now, that's good news if you're a baseball fan. And it's gonna affect my actions because now I'm gonna actually turn back on again because I think maybe, oh, maybe they have a chance of not getting blown out. Uh, maybe I'll even buy a ticket. Maybe it'll even affect my wallet. I'll buy a ticket and go to a game. It's gonna affect. But I, did I do anything to contribute? Did I do anything to help that three-game winning streak happen? No. In fact, if I tried, I would get arrested, okay? <laughs> like, you guys, your bats are really terrible. Let me just jump this fence here and come help you out. Like, I couldn't do anything to help them. In a million times more, 
I could do nothing to contribute to the good news that God loves me, sent his son, Christ died for me, Christ rose again, and he will come again. I did nothing. You know what I did? I contributed the sin that made all of that necessary. The good news is not something we do, it's something we hear, it's something we receive, it's something we delight in, it's something we rejoice in, and then we let that be the foundation that spurs us on to love and good deeds. You hear, you track with me on this? Good deeds are um, good, okay? But they're not the foundation. The message of the gospel is the foundation. Yancey Arrington, who's a pastor in Texas, he, he he writes this analogy. He says, imagine a king departing to his castle, departing from his castle to battle an invading army. If the king loses, well, he sends back military advisors to the castle with the bad news. And they got to tell the citizens, you need some new strategies, you need some new techniques. The enemy is fast approaching. We suggest you put marksmen here and chariots there and so on. And this is all done in an attempt to equip people to defeat the enemy themselves, and they feel incredible pressure knowing that victory or defeat rests on their shoulders. But if the king defeats the enemy, he sends his messengers back with good news, and they return to the castle square shouting, the king has defeated the enemy. Enjoy the peace and the blessings of the victory that our Lord has achieved for you. And with this joyous declaration, the people would not only experience freedom in their daily lives, but their love and gratitude would also be directed toward their king. I like that. That sounds like a party. That sounds like a celebration. That sounds like the burden's off of you. It's not what are you gonna do, it's he has done it. He has done it. It is finished. The work is complete. How freeing is that? How joyful is that? Boy, all of a sudden, I'm all filled up with, with, with grace and with gratitude and with joy and with hope. I gotta get out. I gotta tell someone. I gotta serve someone. I gotta love someone. I gotta learn something. I, I've got all this fuel in the tank all of a sudden to want to go and live the life that Jesus called me to live. If all I tell you is go live the life Jesus tells you to live, you're not gonna make it very far if you don't have the good news of the gospel buried down in your soul. So I want as individuals, but as a church, for us to be gospel-centered like the Thessalonians. I want us to be a gospel-centered church, and I'll define it this way. A gospel-centered church, firstly, emphasizes what Christ has done more than what we must do. You are going to get instructions. You're going to get do this, don't do that from pastors, from leaders, from other you know, fellow disciples. That's all good. From the Bible itself, you're going to get that. But the priority and the center and the foundation is Christ died for you and he rose on the third day. Look at the victory he has won for us. That's what it means to be a gospel-centered church. Just like here in Thessalonica, Paul didn't show up with a message of, look, we're gonna start a bunch of care for poor people. He said, look, God has sent his son. The second marker of a gospel-centered church from this passage is that it's embedded in the entire storyline of the Bible. It says that Paul, on these three Sabbath days, reasoned with them what? From the scriptures. You'd be amazed at how many churches don't have the scriptures open very much in the church service. By the way, 
Paul and the apostles didn't have the New Testament yet. They were still living it and writing it. So do you know what they had? Leviticus. Yeah. The Psalms. Isaiah. Some of those books that you need to make sure that you're invested in because Paul was able to open those books and show them that Jesus was the Messiah, he would suffer, he would die, all from those, uh, those words. We're whole Bible people, a gospel-centered church. The whole storyline of the Bible is all pointing us to the work of Jesus Christ. And third, a gospel-centered church is both resolute and gracious. You see all of this pressure coming at them. You see all of this, these riots. You see all the persecution. All the, all the scholars that I was reading say, look, there's a lot of opposition. Paul's having to deal with, the, the church in Thessalonica is having to deal with all sorts of opposition. And the apostle Paul in these letters, you're gonna see, he says, stand firm and don't give up and, and hold fast that firm foundation. But he also says, hey, live godly and quiet lives. Pray for your authorities. Even in the passage in Acts 17 that we just read, they stood firm and yet they still paid the fines that they owed. Sometimes in the name of being gospel-centered, some Christians and some churches can turn into the, the technical term is um, jerks. We're just standing firm on the word of God. And it just, everything becomes so combative and so fighty and so, you know, us versus the world. No, it's God's love for the world through us. So don't be wishy-washy for crying out loud. That's not a gospel-centered church. But we're, we're seeking to tell the world that God so loved the world that he sent his son. So we're gonna, we're gonna seek to put down those heavy stones and we're gonna seek to be both resolute and gracious. You track it with me, church family. This is so important to me. Um, some of you, maybe you're newer and you're not aware that I, this summer, uh, have announced I'm gonna be stepping out of my role of leading here at the church and seeking the Lord for what happens next in my life and for this church family. And it's both exciting and terrifying and sad and hopeful and all that stuff. But for me, the thing that would bring me the greatest joy to be able to look back on my time of leading Sound City is to be able to look back, let's say a decade from now, two decades from now and say, yeah, that is a gospel-centered church. Maybe the ministries change. Maybe it's not as much foster care. It's more international missions. I don't know. There's so many good things that can be done for the building up of the kingdom of God. But I am praying that Sound City will forever be a gospel-grounded, gospel-centered church. And so I just invite you in your own life, where, where might you be tempted to put something, maybe even a good thing, at the core, at the center, at the foundation of your own life or your family or your community group or your service and your outreach, all good things. But is it because of the life and the death and the resurrection of our Messiah that any of that's happening?